the man with sweet words and wicked deeds. That's the lesson Lucy was to learn the hard way. It was Washington, D.C. in the 1860s. Nation was ravaged by war, the country divided with strife, but for a a young woman named Lucy, the greatest war was in her heart. Lucy Lambert Hale was the younger daughter of John P. Hale, one of New Hampshire's Civil War senators. And she was one of the most ravishing bachelorettes in our nation's capital at the time. Her long list of suitors was testimony to her popularity. The list of those aspiring to her heart was not only long, but it was historical. More than one of her young loves grew to be national figures. As early as the age of 12, you parents are just having a fit right now, (laughs) she was receiving flowers from Will Chandler, a Harvard freshman. Lucy was fond of the young man, but after all, she was only 12. Will became Secretary of the Navy and eventually the United States Senator. But then there was Oliver, only two years her senior. He thought he had found his true love. She disagreed. Though he'd never got Lucy's hand, Oliver Wendell Holmes did get a seat on the Supreme Court. But then there was another man who for a time did occupy a place in her heart. And it is this man whose legacy in history is one of kind words and deadly deeds. His name was John. While the war was raging in the nation, their love was raging in Washington. And while the nation was at odds, they too were often at odds. What confused Lucy about this most recent boyfriend was his inconsistency. He would state one thing and live another. His promises and performance didn't match up. He would woo her with his words and bewilder her with his actions. With words as sweet as molasses and determination as fierce as a bull, John made sure that he didn't remain a stranger too long to Lucy. And with time, he and Lucy became became engaged. That's when the war broke out. Not in the country but between John and Lucy. He was insanely jealous. They quarreled incessantly, and they argued as they listened to President Lincoln's second inaugural address. They quarreled the next night when John found Lucy dancing with the president's eldest son, Robert. They quarreled when the president appointed Lucy's father as ambassador to Spain, and John exploded when Lucy decided to break the engagement and go with her father, to Spain. John was kind with words, but possessive and jealous with actions. Lucy learned from John that a person can have words of honey and hands of steel. And for that reason, she left him. And ironically, she eventually married the man who had sent her flowers at the age of 12, Will Chandler. But though she lived a long and happy life, She would never forget the stormy romance with the man of kind words and harsh deeds, nor would the rest of the world forget John Wilkes Booth. Well, radio personality Paul Harvey had a great way of informing us of history and the rest of the story. The historical lesson that became so vivid to Lucy and one which many of us have encountered in our lifetimes is a very poignant one. It's one that Jesus also encountered, not only through his dealings with the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees, but also with the intimacy of his, within his own 12 disciples. Beware of the man with sweet words and wicked deeds. It's true. A person can speak words of honey and harbor a heart of stone. Judas was the epitome of that. His story is one of the most tragic, treacherous, and hideous examples of betrayal in all the world. He was a chosen disciple of Jesus, a trusted friend, a companion. He heard, he saw, he touched, he tasted the wonders of God's amazing grace. He held it in the palm of his hand, yet he willingly threw it away. As someone has observed, quote, in spite of all that he heard, in spite of all he saw, even in spite of Jesus himself, Judas followed only as far as the gate of the kingdom, no farther. He never could quite 
take that step of faith to enter in. Unquote. Judas Iscariot, from, for two millennia, his name has been a synonym for treachery and betrayal. Forty New Testament verses mention Jesus' betrayal. Forty. Forty times we are graphically reminded of Judas' choice. But I have to wonder how many unnumbered times Judas had the chance to choose the right way. To follow the plain truth and to grasp eternal life. The scriptures reveal that Jesus offered Judas the chance to turn back, as I mentioned earlier today, right up to the very end. In the end, his choices proved to be tragic and indicate, as indicated by the nightmarish description of his death by his own hand, which you can find in Acts chapter 1. According to Dante's Inferno, Judas occupies the lowest level of hell, sharing it with Lucifer or Satan himself. But it didn't have to happen. It doesn't have to happen to anyone. Ever. I say that again. It doesn't have to happen to anyone. Ever. It only happens when a person totally ignores the truth. In Judas, we find that clear principle that tragedy is incurred when truth is ignored. When a person consistently rejects and turns a deaf ear to the truths of Jesus Christ, tragedy is the inevitable result. It's not difficult to map out the pattern of that rejection in Judas's life, actually, from the scriptures. Yet as we do map that pattern out, we need to realize that what happened to Judas can happen to anyone. If Satan could seek out and destroy a close disciple of Jesus, one who had likely himself cast out demons, healed the sick and performed miracles, and was exposed to the fullest light of truth that anyone can be exposed to for three and a half years, what makes us think that if we ignore the truth, it will be any different? The penetrating question is simply this. Could any one of you or could I become a betrayer of Jesus Christ? Smooth words alone mean nothing. Coupled with a sensitive heart, it's everything. Are you sensitive to the truth of Christ? Or are you in danger of ignoring it? That's the question this morning. What are the distinguishing marks of the road that leads to this tragedy? Unfortunately, in studying Judas, a very disturbing pattern unfolds, and we can mark it pretty clearly. The first thing is this, that ignoring the truth, it begins with a closed ear. A closed ear. Let's look at the character of Judas for a minute. Ironically, Judas' character was the complete opposite of what his name represented. Judas means Yahweh or Jehovah leads. Isn't that interesting? That could not have been further from the truth in Judas's life. There is no indication in Scripture that Judas was ever spiritually interested in Jesus. We don't read it. The name Iscariot means man of Kiriath a small Judean town south of Jerusalem. Judas was uniquely distinct from the other disciples in many ways. This was one way, first of all, because he was from away, as we say in Maine, as you say in Maine, because I'm from away. He was a foreigner. He was the only Judean of the twelve. Secondly, he seems to have been well-educated and had a good business sense. After all, he was the one who was in charge of the group's finances, according to John chapter 12 and 13. He was a practical man, a very practical man. He paid attention to the details, at least materialistically. There is nothing at all mentioned in the New Testament concerning how he happened to get hooked up with Jesus. We don't find his call by Jesus anywhere in the Gospels. But we know this that Jesus chose him intentionally and specifically. 
He handpicked every single one of his 12, and every one of them had a background, didn't they? Just like you and I do. Some of them, some of them even had backgrounds that were even worse than Judas's background. Simon the Zealot, Matthew the tax collector, to name a couple. All of the disciples had character defects and personal weak points. Judas, quite possibly, may have been the one who outwardly exhibited the highest qualities of trustworthiness, loyalty, intelligence, and intuition. All great leadership qualities, right? Yet internally, he simply wasn't aligned with the spiritual nature of Jesus' mission. At first, he probably believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But I believe as time went on, Jesus' popularity ratings tanked with the crowds and and with the people, that Judas began to become disillusioned with Jesus and his mission. The conduct of Judas, well, I would characterize Judas as a pragmatist. He was all for the kingdom, but he assumed it would be a here and now thing, that it would be materially and politically embraced. When that didn't happen, Judas became a traitor. He was an incredible hypocrite, according to the scriptures. And why do I say that? Because for three and a half years, he was never suspected by any of the other disciples. You got to put up a pretty good facade to not be suspected even on the night that you betray somebody. Even on the night when they shared the last Passover meal together, the night of the betrayal, no one at all but Jesus Christ himself knew that Judas would do such a deed. Only years later, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would the the Apostle John reveal an incident that exposed Judas's true motivation, which was greed. And we're going to see that in a few minutes. Judas, the concern of Judas, Judas was concerned about Judas. Studying the gospel accounts, it seemed that the only thing that he was concerned about in following Christ was what was in it for him. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12 for a moment. Let's look at a few verses there. John chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, interesting that John includes that, Why was said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Now Matthew confirms that all the disciples questioned this extravagant act of love by Mary, which we saw last time. Yet John seems to indicate that it was Judas who had the most to lose from it. So he led the charge here. He held the purse with a pilfering hand, it says. And in his eyes, Mary's act of extravagant love resulted in money out of his pocket. So it seemed that Judas' loyalties were never really with Jesus. So giving him over wasn't really betrayal from Judas' perspective. Hold your finger in John 12, because we're going to go back there, and look at Matthew 26 for a moment, and verse 14. Matthew 26 and verse 14. Then, when one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. And from then on, he began looking for an, a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Look at that word betray. 
Someone has said the word is an eighth of an inch above betrothed in the dictionary, but a world away from betrothed in life. Judas was never betrothed to Christ. He listened to the teachings. He saw the truth face to face. He had heard Jesus refer to the fact that one of their number would betray him, yet he never really heard what Jesus was saying, did he? He turned a deaf ear to the living word of God. That's where betrayal of Jesus begins. When we refuse to hear and act on the truth of Christ's word, we start down the road which could eventually lead to betrayal. Let that sink in for a minute. How often do we turn a deaf ear to the truth of what Jesus is saying to us? Maybe you sat in a service and heard a message where God has really been trying to get to you about some area of your life. And you know he's talking directly to you. He's got that finger right there, right in your sternum. Yeah, Holy Spirit does that, doesn't he? But as soon as you feel those heartstrings being tugged, you kind of shut off. You close your ears. And you say, I don't, I don't want to hear that. And you ignore that truth. I want to remind you that's where it began with Judas. I don't think Judas really intended to betray Jesus when he first began to follow Jesus. It was a result of a process, I believe, which began with a closing of his ears to what Jesus was trying to teach. James had a lot to say about this. In James chapter 1 and verse 22, he says, Prove yourselves doers of the word and not hearers only who what? Delude themselves. Or as the message puts it, don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a listener when you're anything but, but letting the word go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you hear, James says. As we continue to look carefully at Judas, we come to the realization, however, that a closed ear is just the beginning. Because a closed ear, secondly, gives birth to a hard heart. It's not long after the ears shut down that the heartstrings don't tug anymore and the heart gets hard to the Holy Spirit's promptings. To be honest, Judas was no more sinful than anyone else in the world, was he? Not really. But as someone has said, the same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. It all depends on where your heart is at, doesn't it? Judas' choice not to put his faith in Christ continued to crystallize his soul as he rejected Jesus' truth over and over and over again as he heard it taught. First of all, Judas began to be hardened to Christ's warnings. I'm sure Judas must have bristled when he heard Christ speak these penetrating words to the inheritance-seeking man, In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus said, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Judas had to have felt something when in the midst of a teaching almost a year before he betrayed Jesus, Jesus said these words in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And then Jesus uh, Peter says, continues, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then John records that Jesus answered them this way. Did I myself not choose you, 
the 12, each one of you. I chose all 12 of you, didn't I? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. So even on the night that he was betrayed, as they sat around that table eating the Passover meal, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, including Judas, to all, I mean, it seems to be the implication there. Giving them a living illustration of humble, loving service, still Judas' heart remains stone cold. John chapter 13. Let's follow along with me as I read this text, this greater text. Let the word of God soak into your soul for a moment here. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, Taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him and said, If I do not wash you, You have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. But then he states these cryptic words, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him, and for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me the teacher and the Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. But I do not speak of all of you, for I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Not only was Judas hardened against Christ's warnings, but he was hardened against the scriptures. As a Jew, Judas must have been familiar with the scriptures predicting the Messiah's betrayal. For example, Psalm 41 and verse 9 says this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. It's the very verse that John just quoted in John 13 and verse 18. Also, That the betrayal price would be the price of a slave. In Zechariah chapter 11, in verses 12 and 13, the prophet says this, I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. And so I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter, in the house of the Lord. That was prophecy fulfilled, wasn't it? See, Judas's heart 
was simply not in tune. Christ gave him countless opportunities to reverse the trajectory that he was on, and Judas never took them. I shudder to think how many people may be in danger of callousness to Christ, just as Judas was. Maybe even somebody in this room. Judas's closed ears gave birth to a hard heart, which in turn caused something even worse than that. When one persists in hardening themselves to the gracious offers of Jesus Christ, total rejection is not far from that because a hard heart begets a turned back. A hard heart begets a turned back. Plenty of arguments have been raised throughout church history about the motives behind Judas's betrayal. Some have said that it was never Judas's intent to hand Jesus over to death. In his impatience for Jesus to assume his rightful reign, Judas planned to force Jesus' hand by doing it, and he would force Jesus into revealing himself to the world as Messiah and to the religious establishment and political leaders by handing him over to them, thereby bringing in the kingdom for which the Jewish nation had long been waiting. In essence, Jesus' death was a terrible mistake, according to their view. Judas never dreamed that Jesus would actually be condemned. As a matter of fact, this is implied in the movie Jesus of Nazareth. That's the implication in that movie. Those who hold this view point to Judas's remorse and subsequent suicide as being a grievous result of a plan gone sour. The unfortunate truth about that theory is, is that this argument is completely contrary to what Scripture says. Completely. First of all, the Scripture says that he contrived the betrayal. Jesus identified his betrayer, as I just read to you, as a devil almost a year before the event in John chapter 6. He referred to him as the son of perdition, one doomed to destruction in John 17. Judas' own words in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 15 kind of give him his heart up. Judas said, what are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? That's not, a mis- that's not the words of a person making a mistake. Luke 22, verses 4 and 5 states that they discussed or conferred on the matter and agreed on the money. And Mark writes that the chief priests were glad when they heard and promised to give him money. And, Mark continues, that from that point on, in Mark chapter 14, in verse 11... Judas began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. That statement sounds incredibly familiar to me, doesn't it to you? In Luke chapter 4, as a matter of fact, in verse 13, right on the heels of Jesus' temptation in the desert, at the beginning of his ministry, it says this, When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Interesting wording. The similarities between that passage and the one that I just read to you in Mark 14, I don't think there's any coincidence there. Ultimately, it was Satan who was behind the entire treacherous act. On three different occasions, the scriptures tell us that Judas not only conspired with the chief priests, but with Satan himself. Luke 22, for example. Luke 22, verse 3. In your Bibles. Luke 22, verses 3 to 5. We read them this morning during communion. Luke writes, And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity. John chapter 13, again, 
and verse 2. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. And then in verse 27. After the morsel, after the Last Supper, Satan then entered into him, meaning Judas. And therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. You see, Satan put the suggestion into Judas's heart, but then Judas acted on it. It was no accident. It was no miscalculation. Judas, through closing his ears, hardening his heart, and turning his back on the truth, ultimately opened up the door for Satan to use him. You see that pattern? By continually rejecting Jesus, Judas fell prey to not only an evil suggestion, but actually demonic control, satanic control. Here's the pattern. A closed ear leads to a hard heart, which gives birth to a turned back, which eventually results in a closed door, which exposes our hearts to the devil's influence, which can ultimately bring self-destruction. That's a sad pattern, but that's the way it happens. James even talks about that. Judas should have known that. It was a truth Jesus had warned of before. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Behind every self-destructive act lies an openness to satanic destruction, suggestion, and finally an allowance of his control. Whether it's illicit sex, an addiction to violence, pornography addiction, substance abuse, whatever and or whatever it is that you want to put in the slot, any behavior that results in self-destruction originates not with Christ, it originates with the evil one. That is the biblical truth. There are those who claim that Judas never had a chance. He was a pawn, sovereignly predestined to fulfill prophetic scripture. Now, while we will never completely understand the interrelationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, the Bible is clear that we are culpable. We are responsible for the choices that we make. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? So here's the truth. God's sovereignty never dispels our responsibility. Luke writes that at the communion table, Jesus said, Behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas was responsible. Judas had every opportunity to receive Christ, and yet he turned his back and hardened his heart to every one of them. Jesus knew from the moment that he chose him that Judas would harden his heart and betray him. Jesus knew that, but that never dismissed the sincerity of Jesus' offer of salvation to Judas. Even on the last night of Jesus' life, he offered Judas the chance to be saved, I believe. Think about it. Jesus washed his feet. We just read that knowing full well that he would betray him in a few hours. And as they reclined around the table and celebrated the Passover meal, John was seated on Jesus' right, and incredibly, Judas occupied the reclining seat on Jesus' left, which was the place of highest honor in that day. And the scene is powerful. John chapter 13 again, verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, the one of, that one of you will betray me. And the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. 
And there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. We identify that disciple as John. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said, Tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. And he, he, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. And Jesus said to him, therefore, what you do, go and do quickly. Judas not only contrived the betrayal, but he concealed it. Another clue to the fact that Judas knew what he was doing was his attempt to keep it covered up. Not one of the disciples suspected him. But Jesus knew, and it says here, as we just read, Jesus grieved over it. Even during the meal, when Jesus revealed that he would be betrayed, Judas played the innocent man. Matthew 26. Interesting words here. Verse, beginning in verse 20. Get another perspective on this. Now, when the evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, what's it say? Surely it's not I, Rabbi. Really? Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Surely it is not I? He knew it. He contrived it. He concealed it, and he played the innocent man. Psalm 55, 21 prophetically speaks, I believe, of this event. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Surely it is not I, Lord. Ah, He didn't say Lord, did he? Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Even in this act of passing the morsel, there was an offer of salvation to Judas, I believe. Someone has said that forgiveness is the fragrance of the violet, the violet that sheds on the heel of the one who crushed it. Earlier, Jesus quoted the Psalms, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Earlier, still Jesus had washed every heel that was poised to crush him. Could there be any fragrance as sweet as this offer of forgiveness from Jesus to someone he knew was going to betray him? And now, wrapped in dignity and honor, Jesus dips the rolled unleavened bread containing the bits of lamb into the bitter herb sauce and hands it to the one occupying the place of most honor, In the heat of that moment, I would think that Judas would have been pierced to the heart with conviction. Not only did this gesture of Jesus reveal to John who the traitor was, but it offered again another chance for the one who would betray him to turn back. But Satan was lurking in the shadows, and he must have seized the intensity of the moment because John writes that it was precisely then after Jesus passed Judas the morsel, that Satan again entered into him, and Jesus therefore said, what you do, go and do quickly. That's what John 13 says in verses 28 and 29. Now to one, now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him, for some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. Even still, the secret was concealed. 
And John concludes this with, the, with a very strange statement in verse 30, John 13, verse 30. So after receiving the morsel, he, meaning Judas, went out immediately, and it was night. Interesting phrase that he tacks on the end there, isn't it? And it was night. I think the night outside that private room was nothing compared to the darkness that was hidden in the soul of Judas. He had contrived the betrayal, he concealed the betrayal, and now he was confirmed in the betrayal. Judas's betrayal of Jesus is the result of a tragic process of continually rejecting the truth that Jesus offers. Even at this point, we see how gently Christ deals with people in trying to bring them back out of their hardness. He never gives up. As William Barclay writes, he could have used his power to blast Judas, to paralyze him, to render him helpless, even to kill him. But the only weapon that Jesus will use is the weapon of love's appeal. And that's what he used. This is where the hideousness of sin reveals itself. In spite of Christ's continual appeals to Judas, he was determined And it began when he closed his ears to the truth. The closed ear gave birth to a hard heart. The hard heart gave way to a turned back. And now tragically we see that a turned back becomes a closed door. And a turned back, which becomes an open door to Satan, becomes a closed door to Jesus. Matthew 26, as we wind this down, verses 46 to 49. Jesus said, get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. And now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, hail, rabbi, And kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. And they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. I mean, how much worse could it get? Betrayed with a kiss? And not just any kiss, mind you. You do the word study. Matthew uses an intense word in verse 49. It means to kiss repeatedly and fervently. It's the same word used of the tender caressing and kissing of the Lord's feet by the woman in the Pharisee's house. It's the same word used to describe the way the father embraced and kissed the young prodigal son, the prodigal son upon his return. It's the way Luke describes the intense farewell given to Paul by the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 37. In other words, it was made to look like a kiss of deep intimacy and affection. It's interesting, isn't it, that a snake kills with its mouth. The venom of Judas's kiss of betrayal must have inflicted more pain in Jesus' heart than the nails which were about to pierce his hands and feet. And the intriguing part is, is that Jesus didn't need to be identified. They were all very well familiar with him, weren't they? from his public appearances. This kiss didn't have to happen, which made it even more diabolical. Yet even in the midst of such treachery and hate, Jesus still extended his love to Judas. It's absolutely unimaginable to me, but Jesus responded to Judas's kiss of death with a term of endearment. Friend, Jesus said. And the word means comrade, my longtime companion, friend. Do what you came to do. Now, I would have chosen a hundred different names for Judas at that point. (laughs) But friend, no, that wouldn't have been one of them. Yet Jesus did. Our Lord knew that Judas was the real victim. 
not Jesus. He didn't justify Judas. He didn't minimize Judas's sin. He didn't waive the consequences of Judas's choice either. But he understood that Judas was the real prisoner here. You know, betrayal hurts. It hurts deeper than any other sin because as Max Lucado so aptly reveals, it's a weapon found only in the hands of one you love. Your enemy has no such tool for only a friend can betray. Some of you know that in a very personal way. You've been bitten by the snake's kiss before. Betrayal looks very real to you. It can take on a, a myriad of similar fa- familiar faces. A son or a daughter who has not only abandoned you, but ruined you in every sense of the word. A spouse has left you, either emotionally or physically, for another love. Your plans, your dreams, your family destroyed. Your friend has turned on you, manipulating the truth and ruining your character and destroying your ministry. I mean, examples of betrayal are never exhausted. And you may have your own personal story. You may, have hot, but you may be harboring hatred for that betrayer even now. But if you do, you know who the real prisoner is? It's you. As long as you hate your enemy, a jail door is closed and the prisoner is taken. But when you try to understand and release your foe from your hatred, then the prisoner is also released and that prisoner is you. Says Max Lucado. Jesus never hated Judas. Again, he offered release to him, but the door was already closed in Judas' heart. Judas was closed off to Christ. And the point of no return is an awful place to be, my friends, because as we tragically learn from the life of Judas Iscariot, a closed door is a dead end. Judas had every opportunity to receive the truth and be free. But he closed his ears, he hardened his heart, he turned his back, he closed the door... And then eventually he finally reached the end. Matthew chapter 27. Now when morning came, the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. And then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw what he, that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. Now compare that with Peter's reaction for Peter's three denials. Just back up a little bit to verse 75 of the previous chapter. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Two different reactions, isn't there? Two different hearts. James wrote, but to each one is tempted... When he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, and when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Judas was deceived by ignoring the truth. And Matthew writes that he felt remorse okay, and he returned the silver to the temple all right, but his sorrow was not enough, because even at that point, Judas could have been forgiven. He could have been forgiven had he turned to God. Yet his repentance was incomplete. He confessed the sin, but he didn't confess it to God. Where did he confess the sin? To the people who betrayed, who who paid him to betray him, the priests. He confessed the sin, but not to God. He turned to his accomplices for vindication, his own accomplices. He tried to make it right, but he didn't try to make it right with Jesus, whom he betrayed. Paul's striking words describe the tragedy of Judas's worldly sorrow. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, For God can use sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and seek salvation. We will never regret that kind of sorrow, but sorrow without repentance is the kind that results in death. 
That was Judas's sorrow. It was sorrow without repentance. In Judas's mind, there was nowhere left for him to turn, so he went away and hanged himself. But there was some place for him to turn, wasn't there? He could have turned to Jesus. He could have turned to Jesus. I don't know where you're at in your life, in your spiritual life right now. What kind of sins that you have committed, what you've harbored or contrived and been confirmed in and concealed. But listen, what is holding you back from turning to Jesus? Maybe we don't sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. But if we're not careful, we can sell him out in a hundred thousand other ways. I want to end this sermon with one final call of invitation to you. Instead of selling him out, call on his name. And know this, that the longer you wait, the harder it becomes. My beloved friends, before you leave here today, I want you to grasp this one eternal truth that would be a tragedy for you to ignore. The power of God's grace is greater than the prison of your sin. Father, thank you so much for the power of your grace. And it's a very almost depressing thought to look at Judas's life. And yet you painted the picture, you gave us the truth of Scripture for a reason. That we might know that we can't fall so far that we can't hurt so bad that we can't come to you for help. And so for those, Lord, that may feel the the pressing of the Holy Spirit on their heart right now, I just pray that they would call out your name because it's a beautiful name. The name of Jesus, the name by which all men can be saved because there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved but Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let us not follow in the pattern that Judas showed us in his life, but rather turn to you for grace. For I ask it in Christ's holy and precious name.